This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. Reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to another episode of Reform This. This is your faithful American Muslim patriot. Comes to you every week on the Blaze Radio Network. And thank you for joining me as we try to breach that default that fault line between the West, the land of freedom, and the land of theocracy, Islamism. And breaching that is a challenge, but it's a challenge that I know you can join me in and find in very few places elsewhere. And today I'm going to talk about two major areas, and I think obviously uh, as we uh, see another act of barbarism, an attack on the Ataturk airport in Istanbul uh, that, uh, as I uh, record this, uh, we're still uh, getting the details of what exactly happened, but it appears to be have the, the hallmarks of ISIS. And um, as people begin to ask why, why would ISIS bite the hand that feeds them in Turkey? Yes, bite the hand that feeds them. Yes, Turkey has been... Uh, left holding the bag, if you will, by the Obama administration uh, to to fight the Assad regime and to fight Russia. And Turkey has been more isolated. But make no mistake, the AKP of Turkey, the Islamists, were not fueling reformists in Syria. We're not fueling secular Democrats. They were fueling Islamists. Maybe not ISIS directly, but certainly ISIS's precursors and, and uh, Islamist comrades uh, were part of of what Turkey and Qatar and Saudi Arabia were fueling while the Obama administration was missing in action. So why did they come back? Why did the demon that they fed come back and attack them? We'll get into that uh, later in the program. Uh, But I also want to tell you first about how powerful it was to participate in a hearing this week at the U.S. Senate convened by the uh, subcommittee uh, of the uh, uh, Committee on Judiciary by Chairman Cruz. And the, the title of the Subcommittee on Oversight Agency Action, Federal Rights and Federal Courts hearing that I was asked to testify in was Willful Blindness, Consequences of Agency Efforts to De-Emphasize Radical Islam in Combating Terrorism. And, you know, when they called me a week or so ago to testify, I said, I will do everything I can to share with the American people my feelings about this issue because there is nothing more timely and there is nothing that has hamstrung our homeland security more than the inability to identify the ideological precursors of radical Islam and this focus, this inappropriate focus on countering violent extremism. And I went and and uh, quickly gave uh, uh, a couple days of my time to get here to Washington uh, because 
I felt it is it is immensely important for America to begin uh, the, finally after 9/11 to have this conversation and demand that Muslims have it. And sure enough, the Democrats uh, brought in uh, Farhana Kara from uh, Muslim Advocates and a slew of others who testified to the fact that the moral equivalency of uh, the KKK and other religious groups and, and how calling it radical Islam demonizes 1.6 billion people. And I want to spend some time with you talking about not only how much nonsense that is, but actually how counterproductive that is. It is just amazing to me how they don't see it. And I have to tell you, there were none on the Democratic side that as I raised this issue, that actually it is the low, the bigotry of low expectations that divides this country. It is the bigotry of extremes. On the one side, that Muslims can do no wrong, that Islam is a, a only one interpretation, a monolithic, singular interpretation of a beautiful faith, and that somehow they wanted to de-link as Senator Coons, at the end, after I thought we had a great conversation, Senator Coons ended by saying that, uh, and, and having uh, his witness uh, uh, parrot his belief that spiritual Islam, the belief in, 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 in God, the reading of our scripture in the Quran, uh, prayer, fasting, that all of these behaviors that are personal pietistic cannot be linked to radicalism. And the linkage of that is not only offensive, but demonizes 1.6 billion, thus legitimizing the purging. And there was a graphic that Senator Cruz showed in which you saw that in the 9-11 Commission report there were three, 400 mentions of jihad, Islam, Muslims, and all of these terms. And that since that time, seven, eight reports that they looked at had zero or one mention of any of those terms, that clearly there was an explicit control of the lexicon that Homeland Security could use and publish. And do we really think that they're not taking into account the role of theological discourse? But they just can't talk about it. It has to be off the record, sort of like how psychiatrists don't have charts, that they just don't write it down, but yet they're doing their work. And this dishonesty, this deception has many reasons, and we talked about that in the hearing this week. And Senator Cruz had the courage, as did Senator Graham, Senator Sessions, and others that seemed to understand that actually the avoidance of the discussion demonizes Muslim. It then allows America to perceive that Muslims are silent and aren't debating, that Muslims are not useful in the reform efforts, that somehow we are irrelevant to the need for reform because we're in denial. We, we want the theocrats to speak on our behalf. That's the only message that gets to Americans when they see the American Muslim community silent, when they see the government purge it of anything to do with Islam, and when they realize that ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas, and all of these radicalized and weaponized individuals in America, from Nidal Hassan to the Tsarnaev brothers and Tashfi Malik and others in San Bernardino and now late last Omar Mateen in Orlando, that these are lone wolves, somehow unrelated. But they are related. Americans are smart. They get it. And yet our government wants to control the narrative. 
Why do they? What's the narrative they want to control and what do they get out of it? You know, I have to tell you, not only Farhana Kara, but uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center testified and all of these other uh, far-left organizations that want to simply blame the right and have this very ethnocentric conversation in America that how somehow the partisan divide is the main issue. And I said, listen, this is a bipartisan issue. And by the way, Senator Blumenthal on the left at the end of the hearing endorsed my my bipartisan recommendations and our effort of the need for deep Muslim reforms. And he said this is something he lauded. And I have to congratulate Senator Blumenthal for having the courage to listen and hear my message and endorse it in a in a public hearing in the halls of the Senate. Because I do this from tough love. We can have a conversation with the Muslim community about the evil of theocracy, of the Sharia state, of the Islamic state, of all Islamic states, while also telling them that we love the Muslim ideas of freedom and liberty that want to reform, that want to come to terms with modernity. And that, without doing that, we are actually not only having a bigotry of low expectations, but demonizing Muslims because we then say, well, they'll be Muslims and they're just misogynist and in the 13th century. But don't, don't criticize them because they'll either commit acts of terror or somehow they have nothing to do with it. It's just uh, these uh, viruses that do it. Nonsense. There are deep consequences to the current agency efforts of de-emphasizing radical Islam, and that consequence is an infantilization, infantilization of American Muslims, a squandering of the laboratory of American freedom in which we could be having this conversation. So in my testimony to Senator Cruz's subcommittee, I reminded the senators that when you look at why, you know, they, they continued their talking point, oh, what's going to change if we just call it radical Islamism? Oh, okay, call it that. What happens? Did we solve the problem? And I have to tell you, that sarcasm, uh, I've had enough of. Ask Rafe Bedoui in prison, who gets flogged in front of a mosque because he questioned Islam, whether the name matters. It does. Had he called the terrorists violent extremists in Saudi Arabia, he wouldn't be in jail. But he wanted to criticize the clerics. He hit a like button on a Christian Facebook page. He wanted to have interfaith conversations and reform in the kingdom. But instead, Rafe Bedoui was in jail. And when you look at why the lexicon is purged in our government, it is because this administration gets its talking points and gets its policies from the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, Saudi government, the Turkish AKP, the Islamist in Turkey, the Iranian uh, newfound warm relationship we're having with the Khomeinists, and the $160 billion we gave them. Those are the first and most powerful governments on the planet that will be upset if we call it countering violent Islamism versus countering violent extremism. That's why when the White House had its summit on countering violent extremism, it filled the White House not only with the Muslim Brotherhood apologists in Washington, but it filled the White House and their extremism summit with ministers from Saudi Arabia, from Qatar, from Pakistan, these are our allies against al-Qaeda. 
And as I've said before, it's like inviting the white-collar cocaine and heroin distributors in who are making the billions from the drugs to come in and help you deal with drug violence on the streets. They may not use. They may even use a little bit. But at the end of the day, they know that the, uh, that the intoxicant they're peddling is the root cause. And the intoxicant of the Sharia state of Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, of Egypt, even when they pretend to have secular states, they're not secular. They're just corporate Sharia states that use the same intoxicant to control their masses. When we come back, I'm going to get more into exactly what happened at this, I think, landmark hearing in the U.S. Senate earlier this week in which we finally began to ask for accountability with this administration as to why they are controlling the lexicon in a country that's supposed to have free speech. This is Zudi Jasser. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Zudi Jasser. I'm back with you on Reform This. And, you know, I think there were so many things to talk about that America finally began having a conversation about in the halls of the Senate. And, you know, it was aired on C-SPAN. I would ask you to go to our website, AIFdemocracy.org. Or go to our YouTube channel, AIFDTV, and see my opening statement. And listen also to the testimony of, of heroes like Philip Haney, the whistleblower who, who wrote the uh, uh, great book, uh, See Something, Say Nothing. And also Andy McCarthy, the uh, prosecutor who tried the blind shake and uh, achieved the conviction and from then became uh, one of the country's leaders and most outspoken um, Experts in educating America about the threats of the Sharia state and Sharia supremacism around the world. And I think we might have had some breakthrough. The Democrats, including Senator Durbin, Senator Blumenthal, Senator Coons, were there. They were present. But they really didn't engage on the issue. They simply repeated some of their tired talking points. But Senator Blumenthal, as I mentioned, seemed to have a breakthrough about wanting to support our bipartisan reform movement. But I do believe that there was a breakthrough as far as realizing that these terms do matter. And the shift of policy from countering violent extremism needs to happen. That axis needs to shift to countering violent Islamism. You know, we, we hold our homeland security every time a militant attack happens. We say, oh, they missed the fact that his father was a Taliban supporter. They missed that they interviewed him twice. They missed the Sarnayev brothers, the Russian information we didn't get, and, and uh, uh, the domestic violence and other issues over and over. 
and and the elephant in the room is that the reason this is missed is the narratives that the homeland security can address are simply the narratives of violence that is the rules of operation that is their internal um, memo if you will and this is didn't start with the Obama administration. Attorney General Gonzalez and, and Homeland Security uh, at the time of the Bush administration put out a memo saying that the lexicon should not be abused because if we call it Islamism, Jihad, Salafism, or use their terms like Ummah, which means faith community, if we use that term, they will enable the radicals and give them religious legitimacy. Again, nonsense. There may be some truth to that, but the greater good is enabling reformists, enabling a movement within the Muslim community, within that 1.6 billion to wake up and take ownership of the ideas that are being hijacked by the militants. In the hearing this week, we heard Farhana Kara and, and others call this a death cult and no different than the KKK. Wow. If there's one thing you get from my program and from the time you and I have together, I hope you understand that ISIS, Al-Qaeda is not a death cult. They are symptoms of a deeper disease. It is the cancer within. It is the cancer within the faith communities, within these countries, and that cancer controls and influences movements, political movements and platforms of hundreds of millions of people. Hundreds of millions. Now, how do you say that? Because we're not just talking about the violent part, which is why this language is so important. If you want to hold Homeland Security accountable to the precursors, what is the precursor to violent extremism or violent Islamism? It is nonviolent Islamism. Violent homophobia, as we discussed last week in the Orlando massacre, was preceded by nonviolent homophobia. As Senator Graham mentioned in the hearing today, he said... Do we really think that these, the mosque that Omar Mateen went to, that the individual that went and fought in Syria with ISIS, that happened to have gone to the same mosque, that they didn't talk to one another and other people in the mosque didn't know that? He asked that three or four times to me and the other witnesses. And I said, well, listen, it depends on how you define radical. And so far, our homeland security's definition of radical is somebody who would wear a suicide belt or wear and pick up arms and bullets and want to become violent. And that somehow the definition of extremism and radicalism is explicitly tied to the violence. But that needs to end. Imagine if when we fought the Cold War, I told them, that our, our enemy we defined as simply Soviet militancy and imperialism. And that we said, well, let's work with the Italian communists. Let's work with the Central American communists in helping us figure out how to tame Soviet imperialism and Soviet global conquest. This is the problem. We view people who drink from the same trough of theocratic Islam, the nonviolent ones, as being the solution. Farhana Kara then told them, uh, oh, we at Muslim Advocates want to tell all of you about how Muslims have signed fatwas, religious rulings, condemning ISIS. And she mentioned the letter to Baghdadi that they've signed. And I almost fell off my chair, the letter to Baghdadi? That letter to Baghdadi signed by pretty much the Muslim Brotherhood imams in the West is a 
manifesto of nonviolent Islamism is a manifesto. The fact that they are really the only thing they differ with ISIS is is the means because it talks about how jihad is appropriate in Islam, but just not the way Baghdadi and ISIS do it. It gives a section on the caliphate, that the caliphate is appropriate in Islam, and it's mandatory, it says, but just not the way Baghdadi, who's not qualified to call a caliphate. And yet that was missed and is actually used in the Senate hearing this week to say that this is an example of moderate Muslims. Why? Because the center of gravity of our homeland security operation is that moderation is nonviolence. No, I'm sorry. Moderation is those, and this is what I said at the hearing, moderation is those Muslims who share our values. Not only peaceful, not only non-radical, but Muslims who share our values. Muslims who, and if there's one thing we can do to shed the bigotry, to, to fight this demonization of Muslims to what to the extent that it exists is is ultimately for Americans to see Muslims necessary at the head of the spear of fighting the ideologies within our faith. And the only way for them to see that is for, for it to be transparently part of the American security program domestically and globally. But no, if we invite the theocrats of Islam into the White House, whether they be abroad or domestically, then you're going to attract the theocrats. They're going to attract Islamists. And Americans are going to think that we are monolithic, that we are not diverse, and that we don't have debates within the Muslim community. So Muslims need a tough love. Our homeland security is, by the way, I think, you know, and I haven't had anybody say this, but but I truly believe you know, as they interview many of these uh, Muslims who are pre-radical, I think they're still looking at some of these precursors because they know that's the only way to keep us safe. You really think they need to de-link the religiosity? Now listen, I'm fasting in this uh, in the glorious month of Ramadan as we uh, seek atonement for our sins between me and God, and every Muslim does that, so that believes in this practice. But that's our Islam but to de-link Islam, interpretations of Islam and practices of the faith of Islam from radical Islam is to put blinders on homeland security, to put blinders on the security and blinders on the reform necessary that has kept us at risk and increases our risk daily. The Democrats continued to push the talking points that it would actually increase our risk and feed into the ISIS narrative. That is just nonsense. And it's actually, I mean, do we need anything more than to see the failures of the Obama administration over the past eight years to see how we have become more and more victims of radical Islam as it's spread, as its cancer spreads in the Middle East with with metastases into Europe, with refugees and, and ideology that's infecting the minds of our children who are taught that the only thing worth dying for is the Islamic State and meanwhile, while we should be having programs teaching them to rather die for America and liberty and individual rights, we're not doing that because of political correctness, because of the sense that somehow Americans aren't mature enough to identify the disease, theocratic Islam, and identify the solution, reform-minded Muslims.
when we come back, I'm going to go deeper into the terms and why they're important and what terms, for example, would help us get down that road and then also look at the attack in Turkey and what that means. Why would ISIS attack the hand that feeds them? You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. Eight-hour warning from the Secretary of Defense. Go rescue our guys by any means necessary. Do anything, use anybody. Nothing was ever attempted because somebody issued a contramanding order to stand down. Ignore the Secretary of Defense. I ask you again, who has that authority? Jay Severin. Weekdays, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser, and welcome back to Reform This. You know, we were talking about uh, the importance that words have, and, you know, the, the minimization of many in this discussion that somehow a word will solve everything. That's what policies are made of. That's the only weapon, by the way, of the president of the United States, and that's why campaigns are so important. It's all about words. They aren't our warriors. They're not our soldiers. They might be our commander-in-chief, but... Uh, media, the president's uh, campaigns are about words. And once words change, then policies change. And precursors can be looked at and ideological trends and continuums and that conveyor belt towards radical Islam can then be looked upon as part of a Islam that's out there. And that's why the words matter. And, you know, the words that they wanted to suppress in the conversation and that we've talked about in this program as being sort of the blasphemy laws invoked in America were words like ummah. And we talked a couple episodes ago about how ummah can mean state as well as it means simply faith community. To ignore the fact that the Chattanooga shooter wanted to establish Islam as the ummah, the one ummah on the earth, is foolhardy. It's complete nonsense. And the fact that we ignored that and we were waiting for him to express violent extremism is just beyond incredulous. It's malpractice. And then we want to blame Homeland Security when it's actually the fault of the executive branch, the attorney general, and others who would scrub a 911 call from Omar Mateen and remove references to allegiance to Big Daddy, remove references to Islam and Allahu Akbar and other things that, yes, might offend me. As a Muslim, but boy, that offense better mobilize me to action, to reform. Don't suppress it and keep it from me and keep it from the American people because at the end of the day, the scrubbing of the 911 call, which they then reversed into in a couple hours, but it shows that the predilection of the, ref, of the, of the standard policy of this administration is dishonest. It is to lie to Americans that anything had to do with a version of Islam. And by the way, where does that come from? Three things. One, it comes from a over-influence, an, 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 an inordinate influence from Saudi Arabia, Iran, Egypt, the organization of Islamic cooperation that is basically wedded to the Islamic State concept. So, yes, uh, uh, President Obama 
has some truth in what he's saying and that he's being whispered into the ear of these allies that he wants to enable and work with against ISIS and Al-Qaeda and others who tell him don't ever call it Islamism. These are just terrorists. These are just radicals that are psychiatrically ill. Yes, that's the narrative they want to push because the intoxicant they're feeding their people is political Islam. That's the opium of their masses. If if their people ever separated mosque and state, it would be the end of the monarchs. It would be the end of the theocrats. And this it would go back to individual rights and the universal declaration of human rights. But they don't want to do that. So number one is the pressure he gets from the OIC and the theocratic states that don't want to see Islam come out of the 13th century and the medieval practices that are part of hudud and punishments related to sharia. Second is the inordinate influence of Muslim Brotherhood allies and legacy groups and sympathizers in and around the airspace that is Washington and, and policies. In my written testimony to the Senate this week, I talked about characters like Muhammad al-Biyari, who tweeted out sympathy for the concept of the caliphate, the Muslim Brotherhood, and others, and for that reason was removed from the Health Homeland Security Advisory Group. I also mentioned in my testimony Muhammad Majid, the head of the Islamic Society of North America, and the fact that at times his presence in the White House had to be concealed because of the embarrassment that it would cause the Obama White House for dealing with somebody who had called the, the genocide in Darfur uh, uh, misrepresented for an individual that uh, had had his offices raided as part of Operation Green Quest in 2002 uh, from the FBI because of his relation to uh, a charity that was being investigated. I also talk about Salam al-Mariyadi of MPAC, an organization that is very close to the president and has done a number of forums with the White House and yet releases information saying that uh, I'm a quote-unquote pseudo-expert and has uh, his organization itself has been apologetic for Islamists and has never identified any root cause and has been one of the reasons for the countering violent extremism narrative. And on and on. I mean, you know, this is an individual, by the way, Mariotti, right after 9-11, said that we should be investigating Israel rather than radical Islam. And then he walked that back. But the bottom line is this is the mindset, the anti-Semitism of the Islamists, and I think is, is one of the litmus tests for their Islamism. And I think if you look at every one of the attacks, had we been focusing on theological, theopolitical ideas of political Islam, our homeland security would have kept us safer. Now, yes, it'd be tougher on the Muslim community, but I think it would also buy us a lot of respect for Americans to see us engaging in this reform and this debate that we need to have. So one, foreign influence. Two, sympathizers. Three, is the relationship of the far left to racializing Islam and using it as a as a political prop for partisan politics where the Muslim community is but a tool in their race to make the right into bigots, in their um, exploitation of minority groups to say that oh we welcome the Muslim community and we will hold we don't we won't hold you to the same values that we 
lecture Christians and Jews about at the National Prayer Breakfast. No, we, we don't care if the mosque the president visited Islamic Society of Baltimore is misogynistic is and has the gender apartheid and separation with a curtain between men and women, and women can't even see the sermon directly. They have to watch it on a monitor. We don't care that they had a homophobic screed from that mosque. No, 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 we won't hold that accountable at all. We'll use it as a backdrop of a, the mosaic of American freedom. I mean, there are more modern mosques he could have chosen, but because political Islam is not on the radar, they don't vet for these ideas. So those are the three major areas, and if we begin to expose them, I would ask you, every time you see an act of terror and you look at our policies, start thinking about those three things. Foreign government influence, domestic Islamist sympathizers in and around the circles of influence. By the way, it's not just the Obama administration. President Bush had Muslim Brotherhood allies uh, uh, um, influencing and whispering into his ear, which made him, I think, at times have the position that individuals like Michael Gerson, for example, who in the Washington Post repeatedly has written that, well, presidents can't get into the business of religion. It crosses the First Amendment line and other issues, which I think are are cop-outs, personally, and as, as you can't address the disease otherwise. But unfortunately, I think there are strains within the, the left and the right that are too heavily influenced by global Islam, the Islamist mafia, that donate to presidential libraries like the Saudis that have influenced the, the limitation of debate about what is and what is not Islam and the root cause of why there have been no free markets in Muslim-majority countries, really, that are significant, especially in the Gulf, why there have been very little individual rights in those countries. It's not about poverty. It is about ideology and theocracy. That is an important point that continues to be missed. It is so important that we have this conversation and hold our elected officials accountable. So thank you, Senator Cruz, for having this conversation today and this week and every day as we continue to confront the menace, the cancer within. And if you love the patient, whoever that is, you treat the cancer. You don't treat the symptom only. Yes, you don't uh, um, abuse them. But to treat the cancer, sometimes the patient will get sicker before they get better. Let's jump back to Turkey a second. You know, I think it's a, if you look, let's, let's just talk briefly about what was happening up until now. People are sort of saying, oh, why would ISIS attack Turkey? And, and they are, now they're talking about how Turkey is our ally. And, and uh, this is done because they're working with the West. Uh, I, I think that narrative actually misses the boat of what's going on in the Middle East. Remember, the absence of the Obama administration, the vacuum that the Obama administration left in the Middle East, and especially in Syria, allowed that vacuum to be filled by the Turkeys and Saudi Arabias and Qatars of the world that fueled not the secular liberals of southwest Turkey, of, of southwest Syria, but rather the theocratic rebels the Islamists, not only, not ISIS directly, which is the, the most militant and heinous of the Islamists, but the Muslim Brotherhood groups, the, the pre-Jabhat al-Nusra, the, the hundreds of different little Islamist groups. Remember, the only ones America helped were about 50 of them that were decimated then by Russia, by the way. 
So the the secularists, as the years go on in the Syrian revolution, are continuing to wither on the vine. Because without the help of the free world, why would Russia, why would Iran, why would Turkey, why would Qatar, Saudi Arabia, dictatorships, theocracies, why would they help liberal-minded Democrats in Syria? They wouldn't do that. No, they want to see the ascendancy of an Islamic state that would work with Turkey, with Saudi Arabia, with Qatar as part of their OIC to replace Assad, who is in the pocket of the Shia axis of Iraq and Iran and Russia. So, at the end of the day, why did ISIS go back and then bite the hand that feeds them? When we come back, I'm going to explain that to you. And it has to do with the populations in Syria. This is Zudi Jasser. Stay with me. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Technology has enabled individuals to be able to wage war on behalf of whatever ideology, whatever cause it is they think that they are in support of. And they can turn themselves into a global news story as well as creating a mass casualty attack. It is a lot easier now than it used to be. That much is true. Buck Sexton. Weekdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Zudi Jasser, and thanks for staying with me in this, our last segment. This week, the world is reeling from another attack in the West, this time in a country of 99% Muslims, attacked in the last week of Ramadan with hundreds injured and upwards of 50 killed in the numbers at the time I recorded this. Now, the sad thing is that the 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 response so far has been, oh, well, Turkey's our ally. They're being attacked because no different than Paris or Brussels. That's the wrong answer. The reality of what's happening is two things. First of all, the, the simple thing is that Turkey's being attacked because there is internecine battles within the Islamist movement. The, the non-violent, almost democratic Islamists of the Muslim Brotherhood or the AKP of Turkey, which is basically the, the Party for Development and Freedom, which is the same name uh, for the Muslim Brotherhood as it would be in Turkey, but theirs is the Turkish Sunni variety versus the Egyptian Arabic Sunni variety. But the party is the same. The platform is very similar. Now, they're Islamists, no different than ISIS are Islamists, but ISIS is more of a Wahhabi militant um, you know, uh, very uh, um, bellicose variety of that. But they believe in the same ends. The Islamic State hegemony, the caliphate, is all part of their jihad, the same beliefs. So why would they attack them? So part of it's internecine, a disagreement over who should lead, over who should who should dominate. Part of it is Arab versus Turkish. The, the, the Sunni Arabs of ISIS are... Uh, upset that they're losing so much of their population to Turkey, and they don't want to see Turkey become the the re to see the revigoration invigoration of the Ottoman Caliphate. They'd rather see the ISIS Arabic Caliphate. So that is part of it for sure, and you can't minimize that. But more importantly, more importantly, 
is the fact that a year ago, in the spring of 2015, when the the hundreds of thousands, millions began to pour into Turkey and they were saying, what is going on out of Syria with these refugees and why should they be accepted? And now we have over a million in Lebanon, half a million to a million in Jordan out of Syria, a whole country that was only 22 million. Turkey with a million refugees, half a million to a million. Why did that happen? Our families in Syria will tell you that the Assad regime started to give warnings to Sunni neighborhoods throughout Syria. By the way, what percent of 21, 22 million in Syria were Sunni? 60 to 70 percent. So Assad, Iran, and Russia could not have as a plan to kill all 60 to 70 percent, though that might be part of their plan. It seems to be part of the genocide they're exerting against the Sunni population. But the other part was basically an ethnic cleansing. A, a stimulus to tell them to depart. And that's exactly what happened. All of a sudden, millions of passports were being handed out to Sunni families. And what greater way to not only change the demographics in which you had 10 to 20% Shiite in Syria, that now they will tell you, the, the rebels in Syria that are moderate that we speak to will tell us that they're no longer fighting Arabs. Syrian Arabs on the other side, or the Assad regime, they're fighting Iranian militants, the Republican Guard. They're fighting Afghan Shia and, and jihadists that are joining the Shia cause of jihad of the Iranian crescent that Assad is, is a client state of. And they're also fighting Russians that nobody talks about. And Russian air, especially air campaigns, that are decimating and carpet bombing Sunni neighborhoods with a little bit of attack on ISIS, but pinpricks, nothing major, because the longer ISIS is there, the more it legitimizes the strengthening of Assad. And the only time in which Russia is going to turn its guns fully on ISIS is when the Assad regime has recaptured all of Syria and its strength is no longer in doubt. And so that's not going to happen for a while. So why would ISIS attack Istanbul? Well, with millions going, the circles of war are the hottest inside Syria. The next circle is in Istanbul and Turkey where if they want people to come back and be inhospitably unwelcome in Turkey, what better way to get them kicked out and to stop the influx than to start committing acts of war in Istanbul in a Muslim country but one that is taking their refugees and those refugees, even though they may not be on the same side in the war, are going to be forced to come back and repopulate and at least stem the exit of Sunnis out of Syria so that that depopulation program of Assad would stop. So I was surprised. I think the question to be asked this week is, why didn't this happen earlier? Why did it take so long for Turkey and its involvement in the, the Syrian conflict to um, bring attacks upon them? We saw France... Paris happened because France was one of the most potent in its attack on ISIS. You have to look at that. Now, the question then goes back to, well, that means Turkey's on the right side. Remember, the enemy of my enemy is not my friend, especially as we see with Assad in Russia or Iran with ISIS, but also with Turkey. Yes, they are fighting Assad, and they 
came to terms. It took a while, by the way. Turkey was not anti-Assad right at the beginning of the revolution. The real revolutionaries initially had no support from Turkey. Turkey was in bed with Hafez Assad and then Bashar for years. But then eventually, as the Islamists came to terms with the revolution, then they saw the light and they thought Assad would leave, and Turkey then changed its policy with Assad and ultimately against Russia. So they've been more isolated, and ISIS wants them to become even more isolated so that they can't even dream about an Ottoman caliphate. So what's the policy? I'm sure many of you are sort of wringing your hands saying, oh, just get us out of there. America cannot be part of this solution. Well, you know, listen, we started talking about cancers. Who are the adults in the room globally? Who are the adults? Who are the adults about freedom, about liberty, about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? What will happen if we sit this out? Eventually, if we sit it out, that cancer will continue to attack us. We could pull every troop out, and President Obama has proven that. He thought he was given the Nobel Peace Prize for crying out loud, absurdly, because he was peacefully pulling out our troops, and that act of so-called peace has brought upon more risk and destruction upon the West and threat and put us more vulnerable than ever before. So, please, rescind his Nobel Peace Prize because his vacuum has not brought leadership and he hasn't been the, he's been the adult on the golf course while the world has continued to spread its mayhem because of radical Islam and the dictatorships in the Middle East. So who are the adults in the room? The cancer will spread until we actually start to treat it with chemotherapy against the ideology of political Islam until we realize where Islam is in its time in history. And Mr. Obama and others, Islam is in that time in history in which it needs to reform against theocracy. And we are ignoring that fact. And we had a role to play in Syria. We still do, no matter how late it is. It's amazing. Last week we talked about how 50 diplomats, ambassadors, wrote a letter demanding that Assad be taken out, showing that that the absence, even those who are the dovish State Department, said we should have been doing something because they realized the genocide happening, and America sits it out. And the children in the Middle East, which includes the Islamists of Turkey and of Egypt and of of the Brotherhood and of Hamas and others are continuing to, to create these cauldrons of radicalization because we will not take sides within the House of Islam. How do you treat cancer? Two ways. One is secondarily, you cut it out and you treat the causes. And the other is primarily by preventing the very things that lead to the habits that cause cancer. So we have to begin to engage the verbiage, engage the ideologies, the theologies that feed this domestically and abroad. We have to disengage from so-called allies and realize they are not our friends when they, they have cauldrons of sharia and theocracy that are brewing our enemies. So in the Senate this week, we learned that um, we have to address the root cause. And after Istanbul, 
I hope we realize that the region is a powder keg. The region will not fix its own problem until a vision comes from the West of how America can be that city on a hill and how our 3 to 4 million Muslims can serve that leadership role globally in using our laboratory to be the leaders in the Muslim world where their governments are not leading them, where they are continuing the old 20th century paradigms of theocracy versus secular dictatorship that both are evil. And that there can be a third path in the Middle East, one of freedom and liberty. And that America needs to lead that. And otherwise, Istanbul will continue to happen and attacks will continue to be wrought not only by many that hijack within the refugee population, but by homegrown terrorists and others. So help me treat this cancer. Join us in the Muslim Reform Movement and spreading the word about the need to engage in terms that are real, that without the engagement of these terms, we will actually end up demonizing Muslims rather than treating them with a tough love. And lastly, as you go into your July 4th, remember that this holiday of independence is one of the greatest holidays that uh, I enjoy because that day of independence brought forth a country that celebrated every individual's right to be equal under God and with their rights guaranteed by our Constitution and Bill of Rights. And that this country, and the reason I serve and I continue to serve you with this work that we do in reform and protection and national security, is the greatest country on earth because our families felt American the moment they got here. Because our families didn't feel that they were intruding on another race or another nation state, but rather they were embraced, and as they embraced the ideas of Americanism. So enjoy your July 4th, happy July 4th, and thank God for the freedoms and the the blessings that my family gave me by coming to America and enjoying this country. God bless you. God bless America. This is Zudi Jaster on Reform This. Thank you. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.